You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome out there, all you uh, archaeology podcasters. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel introducing you to uh, our Rock Art episode 72. We've got Dr. Levash, who's the project archaeologist from Mesa Prieta, New Mexico. He's going to talk about some of our latest research together and, and some of the parallels between some of the work I've done and some of the work he's done on concepts of fertility and uh, some of the connections between Mesoamerica, the American Southwest, and even Eastern California. You have to tune in on this one. It's wild. Welcome out there in uh, Archeo Podcast land. This is your Rock Art Podcast with your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we are blessed and honored to have a, a real wonderful colleague, friend, and a very preeminent scholar in the world of rock art. He's a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Levash. And Dr. Levash uh, received his PhD from the UC Santa Cruz. And he is also the uh, project archaeologist in Mesa Prieta, uh, Mexico, for the Mesa Prieta Petroglyph Project. How are you doing, Doc? I'm doing great. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me back on. Well, it's been, a, it's been a little over a year. There's been a lot of water under the bridge, as they say. And uh, maybe give us a, a thumbnail of what you've been up to in the world of rock art I'd say over the last year, year and a half. Yeah. Sounds like uh, you've been very, 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 very busy, right? A lot of research. Absolutely. And and let's hope there's a lot of water under that bridge. We got some rain here last year, but 2020 was a pretty dry year. So living along the Rio, we really need more water on it all the time. You'll seldom hear me complain about rain or snow because, yeah, we absolutely need it. Yeah, so we've undertaken a bit of a research blitz this last year or so. A part of that has been that we've been uh, warming up relationships with outside researchers who have been interested in what we're doing. And then, of course, a lot of that has been my own participation in conferences. And I'm very fortunate that 
being in a somewhat managerial position, I can create opportunities for myself to get out and do some field work. So the long and short of these projects that we did just this past year have been, let's see here, for the uh, SAA conference, I did a paper on archaeoacoustics the geospatial relationships of iconography and included some 3D modeling in that. Throughout the year, I've been developing virtual reality tours that you can find on our website, mesaprietapetroglyphs.org. And these have been a part of our effort to maintain public engagement. While there's been so much uncertainty about whether we can open to the public or not, how much. So this has been a way to bring some of the petroglyphs to you at home. And we're also really excited about how these uh, virtual reality tours have engaged folks who may not have necessarily been able to visit the Mesa before. These led up to my Arara paper last spring-ish, which was on parrot and macaw images at Mesa Prieta, and this was the first paper that I really presented as a sort of virtual reality tour of the subject. I used that same sort of virtual reality tour later in the year, presenting at the annual meeting of the uh, Calif- uh, sorry, the Colorado Rock Art Association, where uh, I spoke about flute player images, which is uh, one of our most popular themes and certainly something that Mesa Prieta is really well known for. There are flute player images elsewhere, but our, ours are better, of course. <laughs> With uh, n- no lesson in objectivity, is it? So that's uh, wonderful. How many uh, images would you say are in the Mesa Prieta sort of uh, in inventory per se, and what percentage of them or what's the uh, tally for, let's say, the uh, flute player images and uh, also for the macaw and uh, other avian elements? Yeah, well, there will be a lot of asterisks to my answer on this one. Sure, We're, sure. Uh, Just we do hope to get 100% coverage of the Mesa. Yeah, yeah. We don't yet have full coverage, but so far we've recorded over 60,000 images, roughly one half of which are in a uh, geo-referenced database that also includes motifs, measurements, other attributes, notes from the recorders, links to scans of the drawings, as well as the the photographs. And like I said, it's a geo database, so we can uh, place them on the map and I can do, you know, fun geospatial analysis. So yeah, we've recorded over 60,000 just based on rough survey coverage. And uh, what we've uh, recorded so far, we'd estimate that there's in the ballpark of about 100,000 images. I'm currently working on a probability model to refine that based on slope, distance to water, other sorts of culturally and behaviorally significant factors to try to get a better estimate on can we refine that 100,000-ish to something a bit more specific? And, and then as we continue recording, test that. That's really rather remarkable to have 60,000 images. Over what uh, area, what would you say would be the, the um, square miles that that 60,000 images occurs in or some sort of uh, aerial estimate? So those have been recorded over as far as comprehensive survey, about 
between six and eight thousand acres, plus a uh, less systematic, more um, picky, choosy way for another about eleven thousand acres. The mesa itself is about thirty-two thousand acres, which is uh, roughly fifty square miles. So, based on right. our estimates of, um, we think that there's probably a hundred thousand images out there in total oh, yeah. for that area that puts this uh, pretty much on par in uh, size, density, and, and raw count as uh, the Coso Range, which uh, I know is one of your favorite yeah, areas. Well, that's got to be one of the greatest densities of, of rock art images in the entire Western Hemisphere. It's amazing. It's truly Definitely. remarkable, and I feel very privileged to be working on it. What's also really amazing is that about 80% of the images are from more or less the year 1300 onwards, in that they're rendered in a uh, very typical Pueblo style. So uh, the archaic images are actually very sparse. So the bulk of the images, I think you're telling me, are, mm-hmm. are what we might call late, later prehistoric, correct? Yes. And there's also a a significant fraction that are post-contact from locally. uh, We colloquially use the terms Hispano, Hispana to describe the Hispanic populations in the area, particularly between about 1700 and New Mexico's statehood. Yeah, their contributions are not to be discounted either. And of course, we also have images that are kind of like proto-historic. If we're going to use prehistoric and historic nomenclature, then there's some proto-historic stuff that seems to be done in a Pueblo style, but reflecting historic themes, including horses, priests, and there's uh, uh, quite a number of crucifixes, which there was a, a recent paper, and it's slipping my mind who the author was, who did a study of these basically from the northern tip of the Mesa up the Rio Grande Gorge, up the canyon. So there's been some exciting work on that. Of course, I'm more interested in the um, the pre-contact, sure. particularly the Pueblo. What, what particular elements or designs or panels really ring your chimes or get the most notoriety from visitors? That, that would be of interest to me. What, which ones are perhaps most elaborate or or most engaging, if I, if I might use that terminology? Yeah, certainly the flute player images. And to answer your question from earlier, there, there's really only maybe a couple dozen of those, but uh, they're, they're certainly quite memorable. What makes them most memorable? Well, we've got the, the anthropomorphic flute players, the uh, animal flute players, or the, the zoomorphic ones, and then we have ones that are somewhere in between, the uh, therianthropic, as I like to call them. R- so I tend to divide yeah, the flute animal. players into those three. And what's memorable about each one of those types, let's see here, the, uh, the anthropomorphic ones are almost invariably phallic. So you know, we can we can chuckle about that, but certainly connections with fertility themes. Uh, I know you're familiar with mm-hmm. Sleefer's work because you're the one you're the one who introduced me to uh, Sleefer's book. So yeah, that's that's something that people remember. But also the animal flute players are something that people remember. In fact, our logo is one of these animal flute player petroglyphs, of, of which there are several, even though they're you know just a tiny fraction of the images on the mesa. Fantastic. Do you see an evolution or do you see some sort of, you know, uh, antecedent elements that show where and whence those flute players originated or do they occur sort of full blown at a particular time and cultural tradition? 
or do we know? I don't think we really know for certain. Because the the migration histories here have been sort of complicated. Nonetheless, I'm not aware of any flute players predating what here in the Rio Grande we call the... I don't know of any Aunt Mesa Prieta that really Mm -hmm. predate the classic period or or at the earliest the coalition period. So coalition period is roughly equivalent to about Pueblo III. Uh And so classic is roughly equivalent to Pueblo IV. They don't line up perfectly but so they definitely seem to come in with migrations from uh, around that time there were migrations of ancestral Puebloans both from the uh, the Galisteo Basin so sort of not too far from uh, Santa Fe Pecos Arroyo Hondo but then also yeah. the the more well-known migrations into the area uh, as reported by Tewa ethnographer Alfonso Ortiz came from the Four Corners, uh, particularly the the Mesa Verde area. So we definitely see a few of those images out there. Uh, I don't really have an inventory of of what the folks out there have, but certainly the uh, the Crow Canyon Archaeological Center would probably have a better idea of of, uh, that corner of the Southwest. And there are flute player images in Chaco Canyon, where there's, uh, and, and the name is slipping my mind, there is a uh, graduate student from Exeter who seems to be doing her dissertation on the flute players out at Chaco. So we okay. think that this motif kind of emerges um, with the emergence of Pueblo culture and then okay. comes into the Rio Grande area with these migrations uh, that, that really kick off the classic period or you know, roughly Pueblo four and other parts of the Southwest. I've read some of Eckhart Malotki's sort of deconstruction, I think, of that particular element. I think he tries to examine it in terms of its derivation or the linguistic associations. Has that worked at all for you or any one of the researchers that I that you're aware of? Are you aware, are you aware of that? I like Eckhart. He may not always be a, a, a fan of uh, some of some of what I've done, but I like what he does, and we actually support his research here. So some of his examples actually come from Mesa Prieta. So, oh, really? Okay, uh, Eckhart Malatki, if you're out there and listening, we welcome you back anytime. Yes, I think that the book they wrote recently is one of the more interesting sort of you know essays. The one on sort of the origin of those abstract elements in the in the far west, you with Ellen DeSenayaki, you're aware of that one, then. I'm aware of that book. Yeah, they. What? Anyways, it's it's another thing from to trying to understand the evolution, origin, and sort of the the way in, the way in which uh, rock art and art itself may have been developed. You know, Ellen DeSenayaki has been sort of on that path for a while, and Eckhart teamed with her and. Uh, had contacted me several times on on that particular subject, and it's fascinating. I mean, to to try to understand the origins of art, as you're well aware. Oh yeah, and and you you had mentioned Terthamuka Habadai, and I and I I didn't. We jumped to another subject, but you must have had something to say about that. The uh, the gentleman from Guanajuato University. Well, he and I met in 2013 in Santa Cruz when he was there on his oh, wow. uh, on his Fulbright. Yeah. Okay. At that point. 
Uh, I was beginning to develop what ended up becoming my dissertation, but I wasn't sure that it was actually going to become my dissertation yet. So we didn't really connect strongly enough to make a project happen, but we did We did have plenty of great conversations. And uh, of course, you've had the great fortune of working with him on, uh, you, you just came out with another publication with him, right? We have a book, a 70,000 word book that uh, has been accepted by Bergen. And certainly I could not have even considered doing anything that ambitious without him. And it's something we had not intended to develop. It just sort of happened again organically, just through our own research. But in any event, he, he's an astoundingly interesting person and has quite a remarkable background. And I think one of the strengths that he has, first of all, he speaks three languages. And also, he, he's, he's got a very different background it's in art history, it's in, in cognitive uh, anthropology, and in, you might call it, neurotheology in some ways. And so uh, it, it's fascinating that sort of, you know, I, I come from the hard archaeology side, and he came from sort of a softer uh, element, but uh, we've kind of merged some of our ideas together, and they seem to work. But uh, your work in general is very, very impressive. And, uh, you know, I've, I've read your dissertation several times and I thought it was absolutely re remarkable. Just the way, the way you engage the data and your theoretical twists. Oh, thank you. And, and I've read your dissertation too. I found it uh, very helpful, <laughs> uh, especially for trying to tackle the, the culture history of that area. Well, thank, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We can do a mutual, mutual, mutual beneficial society right now, but We've used up our time for the first segment, and I'll see you see you guys in the flip-flop. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on Pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P A L E O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. Okay, welcome back to your Rock Art podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, your host, and we have Chet Levosh, Dr. Chet from Mesa Prieta, the Petroglyph Project. And uh, I think Chet and I are going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, potential relationships and the interconnections between the uh, Great Basin, the American Southwest, and moving into Mesoamerica. Chet, you are, I guess you're aware that we had uh, done some research and connections and had some discoveries that seemed to, at, at points, connect the dots relating to sort of this Uto-Aztecan theme vis-a-vis -vis their sort of uh, hallmarks or symbolism, and running from perhaps uh, an archaic stratum all the way through to the historic arena. And we tend to, when I say we, of course, I mean D Dr. Uh, Tirtha Mukahabadai, who's a professor at uh, Guanajuato University in, in Mexico. I think you had some reflections and things to uh, ponder 
relating to that matter, don't you, Chet? Yeah, absolutely. And even because you mentioned uh, Eckhart Malatke's work Malatke, on sure. uh, tying in the uh, linguistic component of the influence uh, uh, on the petroglyphs, and certainly the uh, the Udo-Aztecan influences on the petroglyphs here are fairly prominent. I'm just wondering about that assertion, and I'm sure you can explain and, and go into that. So please move ahead. Yeah. It's theorized that the ancestral Puebloans, particularly during P1 and P2, in the Chaco sphere of influence, might have spoken a uh, Udo-Aztecan language. However, the uh, present-day Pueblos along the Rio Grande, particularly the uh, Tanoan speakers, Tewa, Tiwa, uh, I think Tano's extinct. Their language is different enough that it's not usually put in the same family, although there are some remaining cognates. Nonetheless, in the iconography, I think we see a lot of that influence. And like we talked about in the first segment, that a lot of these images are probably coming into the uh, the northern Rio Grande region from the ancestral Pueblo world and in the four corners, Colorado Plateau, Chaco area. So then it should be no surprise that there are some influences. One of the uh, things that I've been wanting to do more work on is the flower world because that's, that's Udo-Aztecan. But that's a project that's still um, slowly uh, slowly developing. But something that, that you and Tirtha talked about was uh, snake images. And certainly we have uh, snake images. And there's really here, there's an interesting interplay between the, uh, the, the more localized significance of uh, serpents and then the apparently later on Udo-Aztecan significance. And at some point they, they end up sort of combining synergistically. So in the Southwest, we have this image called the, in the Tewa language, it's called the Avanyu. It's a horned serpent. It can either be depicted with two horns or one horn. We also see that image in the rock art from earlier ages. And, and in fact, from non-Pueblo cultures, I believe it appears in uh, Fremont rock art. So uh, there's a suggestion that there's kind of some antiquity to this image and, and that it has uh, cultural and religious signific- significance outside of Udo-Aztecan influence. But then y'all were talking about the feathered serpent, uh, Quetzalcoatl, and that's certainly something that we see appear in the rock art in New Mexico, particularly in the, uh, the Pueblos a little bit uh, further south. Uh, I want to say uh, Acoma, may- maybe Isleta. So we see the, this feathered serpent image get combined with the horned serpent that seems to have been depicted here before the feathered serpent made its way up. And that's a, a cool example of religious syncretism that we've got going on here is this sort of combination of like, you've got the serpent, we've got a serpent, and there's a lot of like overlaps in the associations. And I talked about a Tertha's work on the psychological aspect of of things, and that might well underlie some of the the significance of these images apart and and why they hold such religious significance when they're brought together. So, yeah, yeah, this um, sort of 
cognitive aspect to it, something that might be hardwired in our uh, recognition of snakes. In this case, our hardwired recognition leading uh, potentially to a point of veneration. Um, I don't have Sleefer's book in front of me because I wanted to double check, but I think that he uh, mentions the association between the horned serpent and water and fertility. And that certainly seems to yeah. be something that we see here in the, uh, in the Northern Rio Grande. It's remarkable to, to note that ancestral Puebloans didn't use this image as much in the Chaco area, even though, like, like I said, Fremont certainly did. And one hypothesis is that particularly in like the Colorado Plateau, water used for irrigation, thus for um, for bringing fertility and world renewal to the crops that sustain the people, water often came from the sky. And so there's this association with the sky and clouds and the ancestors. And uh, that also has a tie in with flute players, but uh, I don't want to get too tangential here. So we get this the, the, this uh, cloud ancestor rain association, and we do see images that seem to correlate directly with those associations. But then uh, also, once they get to the, the Rio Grande, because this is, especially up here, we're right on the cusp of the desert and the Rocky Mountains. And so the river doesn't always fluctuate with doesn't always fluctuate with the weather because that weather might be happening somewhere out of sight uh, further up in the mountains and is also tied to say the melting of the snowpack which of course happens even more rapidly on sunny days and so while there's this retention of the this cloud ancestor association we also see a proliferation of the horned serpent uh, in this area in in a way that, at least to my knowledge, was not nearly so significant in, in the Four Corners uh, prior. And so, yeah, the, uh, the hypothesis being is that now we've got these, these two sources of water that are both connected to bringing fertility. You know, one is you've got all sorts of elaborate irrigation systems, uh, both to uh, capture water from the river, but also to capture runoff from places like Mesa Prieta or in Tewa. And I'm, I'm, my Tewa pronunciation is awful. Tsikwaye. Uh, Fascinating. So, and I thought you would like the fertility association there too. No, I no, no, I really, I really do, and it's just my mind is going a million miles an hour because there's so many different relationships and and elements that come to play here. This, this reminds me about the uh, panel. I think it's in Arizona. I think it's in um, part of the uh, park. And it, w- it was in that Eckhart Malatki book, but it also uh, occurs several other places. It's the mistress of the animals with a uh, Coco Pelli-esque uh, depiction as well, but a, a number of other interesting reproductive symbolism icons, including a number of animals that appear to be uh, open for reproduction with their tails towards the sky <laughs> and a couple of the um, uh, associated spirit uh, arrows, as I've called them, uh, heading towards their genitals. And I mean, it just shouts reproduction and fertility. And I'm wondering what your thinking is about 
any and all of that. The, the other thing is, is there, in fact, I, I believe there's even a bighorn sheep as part of that uh, particular panel. So it has bighorn sheep. It's got, uh, you know, phallic uh, feet or toes, those, you know, big, big toes. And um, but it's but it's interesting because that particular panel became uh, part of my discussion on the COSO material because they themselves are doing that kind of embellishment and fertility communication on some of their, uh, you know, discussions on, on, on their panels and on their pictures. And it's so transparent. You know, sometimes you come across these, these particular rock art images and it's rather, rather direct and easy to read them. Do you agree or no? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, once you know what to, to look for, often this jumps out at you. And um, yeah, doesn't it? Uh, we do have, right. And you uh, uh, mentioned th- this particular uh, supernatural character who, like, essentially to the, the Pueblos is like the female version of the uh, Numic animal master, Hilera, well, yes. wh- whom, with whom I know you're familiar, right? So yeah, there's definitely uh, some some fertility associations, and and particularly with the flute player images. Every year we run a, uh, a summer youth intern program where uh, high school mm-hmm. students uh, get the the chance to earn dual credit while actually doing archaeology and in particular recording petroglyphs. Last year we went to an area that uh, appears to have been used as agricultural fields during the Pueblo classic time. And it's really interesting that on one side, we have a lot of masculine images, flute players with phalluses, and and that stretches along one side. And then there's a a, a parallel side, you know, opposite that, also bounding this agricultural area that has a ton of female imagery, including female anthropomorphs that seem to be in an open receptive or even uh, birthing position. Yes. Interestingly, there are some flute players next to the females too, but they are not phallic. They appear to be slightly anthropomorphized versions of the sprouting seed motif, which oh, is probably word. a reference both to uh, Tewa cosmology and, and a particular class of uh, of supernatural being, you know, also the physical world of the the sprouting of the the corn seeds, and as you track these two parallel walls, there comes a point where the, this agricultural area, like absolutely rife with um, with with check dams, grid gardens, just every strategy that the Pueblos used to channel water towards crops, almost all of them like in this one spot. And, and, and then it suddenly curves to a point. And at that point, there is a panel where there is both a phallic anthropomorphic flute player and a uh, female figure with the very characteristic uh, squash blossom hair whorls, or I believe that the Paiute called that hairstyle the butterfly whorls, but to the Pueblos, it's the the squash blossom. And and 
the flute player and female image kind of run together. So these these two motifs are like straight up connected. And so there's this uh, moment of not explicit coitus, because we do have explicit coitus scenes on the Mesa, but more Mm -hmm. implicit coitus with this joining of the male and female that run parallel on either side, each in their own way, guaranteeing fertility to this spot. That's fantastic, isn't it? I mean, it really is amazing that we can we can basically read these images and have a have sort of an appreciation or understanding of them because this alone has taken us quite a while, as you're well aware. The um, butterfly and that the squash blossom, of course, is uh, kind of a hinge point for when the the woman, the young girl, reaches uh, marriageable age and I believe is on her first menses. And then, of course, the the butterfly has to do with transformation or transmogrification or change and renewal, etc. So I begin to understand that as well. And I've noticed in the Koso case, there are a number of those images that show active menstruation. They're bleeding and they're showing that from uh, these particular images that have the hair whorls on them as well. It's been interesting. The thing that's interesting in, and, and that will maybe somewhat a little bit unique or different in the Koso case is we have these very ancient, very, very ancient, early archaic, I would say at least, elements that are predominantly female. They are definitely gendered and they incorporate birds and snakes and women as, as a unity. And uh, they are showing this again, this uh, fertility symbolism, either as rain or seeds or, or even basketry, etc. And the more we study it, the more sort of content driven. Now, as well, it does show snakes, constantly snakes, snake themes, and also snakes themselves with, with those hair whirls. <laughs> So snakes with hair whirls, believe it or not, and snakes ascending from the underground or descending into the netherworld. And also uh, a particular set of sort of deities or supramundane beings holding snakes either in their hands or for one frame in his or her mouth. And I thought that was rather interesting given the Hopi analog We've seen uh, photographs of that kind of phenomenon as well. Yeah, we have some images that are uh, hypothesized to be snake dancers on the Mesa, and they seem to also be associated with with some fertility iconography. One of them that comes to mind, the, the snake actually forms the... The, the line that is the bottom of the torso. But also what you're describing oh, in Koso reminds me of a, a particular petroglyph at one of my dissertation sites. And I don't okay. think this one is an open and shut case, but I strongly yeah. suspect that it's a PBA, uh, pattern body okay. anthropomorph for the audience. And the body or, or tunic, as I believe uh, you and others have pointed out that sometimes this was actually physically painted onto a, a garment seems to be the uh, the diamond chain of a snake. Yes. And it's holding a net. 
And that one in particular reminds me of two oral traditions, one of which is the story of Tsoa Pitse, who was a, um, a, a female doctor, a, a shamanic doctor, but that uh, often her title gets translated to witch because she started to use her powers for ill, for selfish gain. I think the long and short of it is that she uh, was not able to have kids of her own and became jealous of the folks who had kids. So she uh, she kidnapped a child. Sometimes she kidnaps more than one, but uh, she kidnaps at least one baby and uh, raises it at, as her own. And uh, all the while, like, so a pizza, she, she's a female doctor, so she has a, a spirit guide who uh, a common one for uh, for girls to get as they become women during their puberty rights would be variously pronounced as Togoav or Togova, literally meaning rattlesnake. So her spirit guide right, is the rattlesnake. Yep. Yep. And um, so her spirit guide wow. is um, uh, Togo uh, Togoav. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, eventually the the villagers led by, I believe it was Hawk and Coyote, uh, figure out what's gone down and they go to rescue the boy. And so they run after it. So Pizze, the boy gets away, but they're they're still after her because like she needs to be punished for this. Right. Uh, so in, in desperation, she turns to Togoav and, and says, help me, hide me. And so uh, Togoav swallows her and the bitterness of her jealousy makes him sick. So since he can't throw up, he has to instead shed his skin, trapping yes, so a pizza yes. inside the skin in, in a crack oh in God. the rock. And, and so wow. she's trapped. Uh, I guess the snake skin is a metaphor for the rock surface itself. And wow. so she's trapped on the other side of that. And that's how she becomes Echo. Because when, when Coyote and Hawk wow. start crying out for her, like, So Pizza, where are wow. you? She just calls back mockingly, So Pizza, where are you? <laughs> well, we're, we're at this end of our, I'll tell I you where we are. We're at the end of our, we're at the end of our second segment, but let's uh, segue along. See you in the flip flop, gang. Welcome back, uh, podcasters, to your rock art podcast number. 72. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel, your host, and we have Chet Levosh from the Mesa Prieta Petroglyph Project, and uh, he's on board as our guest scholar, and we're just riffing along and telling some great stories. Chet, that was phenomenal, that last little little piece. I am, I am very intrigued by what you've had to share with us here. I guess my question to you is, are any of these panels with fertility, do you see them incorporating animals that have any of those kind of elements that you and I both know about? The uh, Let's say the tails going either horizontal or to the sky, or, or are there examples of those sort of spirit arrows that we talk about, or any other sort of symbolism that you found is consistently patterned in association of communicating this spirit of fertility or reproductive symbolism. You know, if I had the database open in front of me, I'd definitely check on that. But just off the top of my head, I'd say we, we should revisit our ungulate images for that, especially that upturned tail or the uh, the landing yes. strip, as I like to call it. 
especially the animal flute players, they tend to have long tails. Mm-hmm. One of them we think is an armadillo, which is interesting because we're outside of the armadillo's natural range. Oh, wow. But that's not it's not the furthest flung animal by far. And then for the uh, the flute player that's our logo, that also has a long tail. And that one might actually be associated with an oral tradition about the constellation that you and I know as Ursa Major or the uh, the Big Dipper. So I, th- I, I think there are associations, but I think that some of the iconographic cues uh, might be a might be a little bit different. But they, but they do turn on sacred narrative or or uh, mythology and and other sort of uh, amazing stories that are part of the fabric of creation, are they not? Yeah, absolutely. A part of the fabric of, of creation and, and of world renewal of that fertility that you're talking about. So so even if even if they don't necessarily have the uh, all of the same visual cues, they're they're certainly articulating. Uh, very often articulating with the same themes. The flute itself, flute player images are also sometimes known as cloud blowers. Both the flute and Ah. the tobacco pipe were ways of making clouds. Clouds, breath are a part of the the, the sound of the flute gives voice to the ancestors who, as I mentioned in the first part of the program, are associated with clouds and and thus the the rain that that helps bring the the crops about. So we'll we'll see sometimes with the flute players there'll even be like a bloom at the end of the at the flute like it has a bell or even a gourd on the end. Yes. And this isn't necessarily a literal bell. It, it's an iconographic reference to the creation of clouds through the playing of the flute, the smoking of the pipe. In addition to that we'll see feathers sometimes attached to the flutes. And, and that's known as flute breath. And so I mentioned at the top of the program, there are a few cognates with Euto-Aztecan languages and Tanoan languages, one of them being poaha, which you might recognize as pua, puha, or poha. Literally the same breath, water, life force. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that. I love it so much. That's just amazing. And if you think about that, even from the uh, Hebraic, the Bible, they talk about looking at the words for breath and Holy Spirit. Those are the Ruach HaKodesh, the Ruach being being breath, and that's that being, as, as again, being the life, the life force. And then the uh, clouds. The clouds are so intertwined with a lot of the basic creation stories. This was very difficult for me to understand initially, even understanding how we can relate clouds and rain to snakes, who you would think would have little or nothing to do with water and vitality and life. You know, from the Western industrial perspective, we think we think of snakes as being bad and seemly and what, what, what you have to say, but there seems to be a, a turning around, a reciprocal of that. And, and you even alluded to it when you talk about the, the skin, the snake skin, you know, leaving and then revitalizing as sort of an analogy for resurrection or transmogrification or transformation. And then the other one, of course, is the circuitous nature of this, this liminal animal moving along the ground in a way that parallels water. Yeah, and that parallel with water may be why we see the 
the Avanyu, the horned serpent associated with the, the water of the rivers, in one version of the oral traditions around it, the Avanyu would win- overwinter in the mountains and then come down into the river in the spring and then live along, right along the foot of the mesa, right <laughs> right where one of the uh, the villages was, was one of its uh, dwelling places. And so the, the serpent seems to also be associated with the water from the the melt of, uh, from the snow melt, from storms that might happen in, in the mountains. And so when we see the water rise on, on a sunny day, but also coming yeah. down the agricultural features. Absolutely. I think uh, we're going to wrap it up here, but I think we're going to, this has been such a, a vital and interesting, I think this is a perfect segue to do a bonus content for members only. Why don't we sign off for a bit and then we'll add some additional interaction some repartee and we'll uh, we'll go ahead with that bonus feature how about that you want to you want to say a, a segue goodbye to the, your audience here absolutely thank you for having me on and thank you everyone for joining us Th- thank you thank you so much uh, it's been a, an absolute joy see you on the flip-flop gang Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Come.